Well, good evening. Uh, give a thank you to the band, and uh, if anyone has a Bible with them, can I encourage you to open with me to the book of Philippians as we continue working our way through Philippians and through the first chapter. We're coming towards the end of the first chapter this evening, so we're going to pick up in Philippians 1 verse 1 and just read the whole of this uh, wonderful chapter together. So Philippians chapter 1, beginning to read in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known through the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, 
and now here that I still have. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, and we're in verses 27 to 30 this evening, just at the end of chapter 1. And really, I think there's um, a big theme, one big message that I want you to leave with, and it's really summed up in four words, live a life worthy. Live a life worthy. We're going to see that worked out as we work our way through these verses uh, later, but if you're going to leave with something, that's what it is. Live a life worthy. Let me pray and ask for God's help as we look at these verses together. Father, we thank you that we have this wonderful privilege of gathering together as your people, as the family of God, and hearing from our Father, hearing from our elder brother, Jesus, as he speaks to us through his word, hearing from the Spirit. And Father, I pray that tonight that would be our experience, that we would know that we haven't just heard a preacher preach, but we would have heard from God. Father, would you give us ears that would really hear, and hearts, hearts that want to keep your word, so that we might be obedient, and that we really would live a life worthy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You are my son. I love you. Now remember who you are. You're my son. I love you. Now remember who you are. If you were in our house some mornings, uh, before I head off to work, you might hear those words. You're my son. I love you. Now remember who you are. You've probably worked out that I don't send to Vicky as I'm leaving the house. <laughs> um, uh, these are words that I, I say to my son. And what is it that I'm trying to say to my son as I leave the house? Well, am I thinking that he's going to forget his name? Is he going to be going up to his teacher in school and saying, what? what's my name again? Well, no, it's, it's not that, is it? What I'm wanting him to know is this. When he goes to school, he is very much our son. He is loved. He is our son. But with that comes responsibility. He's to, to live as our son. Even though neither mom nor dad are going to be in, in, in school, he is still supposed to live in such a way that reflects the fact that he is our son. You see, we've got particular ways that we do things in our house. There's particular language that we don't use. There's particular language that we encourage him to use. There's particular ways that we do things if you're part of our family. You're my son. I love you. Now remember, 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 remember who you are. Well, as Paul writes this letter to the church in Philippi, I think he's saying pretty much that. He wants them to remember who they are because they are to live in a particular way, or to live in a particular way. And so the big message in these verses tonight is live a life worthy. Live a life worthy. Listen to what Paul says, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You see, Paul is, is writing to a group of believers here. That's who he's speaking to. We saw that right back at the start of the letter uh, that John read for us. He's writing to saints. You might remember Alistair's sermon on that. Where are they? Well, they're saints in Christ at Philippi. In Christ and at Philippi. He is writing to the church. And he commands this church, this body of believers, to live a life 
worthy a life worthy of the gospel. What does that mean? What does it mean to live a life worthy of, a go- of the gospel? If you happen to have a, an ESV translation, uh, they have a little footnote at the bottom, and it says, uh, uh, you can translate it as saying, only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. It's just another way of translating it. Only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. And perhaps that idea of citizen is really helpful for us as we try to think, what does it look like to live a life worthy? Well, the idea of citizen gives you a, a, a sense of what that's really talking about. Because if you are a, a citizen of a, of a particular country, well, then you're supposed to live, you're supposed to act in a particular way. If you're coming to live in the United Kingdom, moving in from another country, well, then you have to live in a particular way. You can't just say, well, where I come from, the rules are different. Picture it, you know, you've just moved from, from France, and you're, you're driving on the right-hand side of the road, and everyone else here is on the left-hand side of the road, and you say, yeah, but this is the way we do things. I'm not getting on board with your rules. No, 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 I'm sticking to my rules. I'm going to uh, drive on the right-hand side. Well, you can see that's it's not really going to work, is it? <laughs> if everyone has their own rules, that's not going to work. No, you have to come and you have to say, okay, this is the rules of the country. This is the, the rules uh, the which they, they, they tell me I must abide. This is the way that we do things. Citizens of a particular country are supposed to live in a particular way. And for the Christian, Paul is saying, you too must live in a very particular way, a way that is worthy of the gospel. In other words, what he's saying is, you must live godly lives. Godly lives, that's how you must live. It should be obvious to people that look on at your life that you're living in a way that's different, that's distinctive. You live distinctively, living as uh, someone who lives in the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of the world. And as you live a life worthy of the gospel, what you're doing is you're, you're modeling gospel priorities. You're modeling gospel priorities. And so you're seeking to glorify God and to enjoy him. As people watch on your life, that's what they should see. You're seeking to glorify God and enjoying him. And what Paul is saying is something like, Remember who you are. Remember who you are. You're children of God. You're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So live like it. Live like it. And the order is important, isn't it? Remember that they are already saved. They're already saints, okay? That's who they are. They're already saints. And so it's not that somehow, as you live in this godly way, that you earn salvation. No, 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 the order is really important, okay? Remember who you are, you're children, you're children of God, and so now you should live in a particular way. You must live in this new way. You've been given a new life, and a new life leads to living in a new way. And so Paul's command is, live a life worthy. And notice what he says after that. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. You see, firstly, notice that Paul's concern is that they live a a life worthy of the gospel, whether he's there or whether he's not. Now, you see, it seems to me that Paul is only uh, only too aware of the kind of things that can happen. 
Young people, for example, you know how it works. A teacher leaves the classroom. What happens? Chaos within seconds, isn't it? It could have been perfectly amicable before the teacher leaves, and as soon as the door closes, boom, that's it. The classroom just changes, doesn't it? Perhaps, boys and girls, you might know what it's like. If your mum and dad are there, well, then you behave slightly differently. But if they're off, well, then, do you know? It can be chaos, can't it? I remember a previous church that I was in, uh, whenever the, the minister would say that he's going on holiday, <laughs> basically the next week no one turned up, you know? And you were thinking to yourself, what is it? Is, is it that God's command to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy and his command to, to not stop meeting together? Was it that this was put on hold while the minister was on holiday? Or was it that acts of, uh, of mercy and necessity uh, that kept people away from the gathered worship of God's people just, you know, spiked on the day that the minister was off on holiday? Well, I doubt it. I doubt that was the case. And Paul is keen that these Christians know that their lives are to be marked with this consistent, consistent godly living. Whether Paul is there in person or not, it shouldn't make a difference. That word only at the start of verse 27 really carries with it that sense of, of making this your exclusive focus, a constant focus. Godliness should be our focus. If we think back to our series on, on James that we recently finished, I think James would say, you must be single-minded. Single-minded, not double-minded, single-minded, focused on godly living. And the thing is, for the Philippian believers, whether Paul is there or not really shouldn't be the motivating factor as to whether they live godly lives or not. Because where Paul is limited to, to one place at one time, God himself is omnipresent. He is fully present at all places, at all times. Now, that's hard for us to get our heads around, isn't it? We're not really going to get our heads around that. But God is at all places fully present all of the time. So it doesn't matter whether your teacher is in the classroom it doesn't matter whether your parents are in the room or, or, or whether your minister's off on annual leave or not. Because God is always there and God always sees how we live. And we are to live as citizens of his kingdom worthy of the gospel. Next, notice that this worthy living means a standing firm in one spirit. There's this whole idea of unity. Now, the standing firm here is it's really the, it carries with it the sense of refusing to budge, refusing to budge, standing firm, persevering when the pressure is, is very much against you, seeking you to move, but you're, you're standing firm, you're refusing to move. Like a great big ship that's been uh, battered by the waves, but the anchor is down, and so it refuses to move. And Paul, as he writes to this group of believers, he longs to hear that they are standing firm and in one spirit, that they are a, a united church, that they are together holding the line and refusing to budge, arm in arm, because this is a church that's under opposition. It's facing opposition. And so with one mind, they are to strive side by side. It's a picture of a, a body of people who are all heading in the same direction. They have the same goal, don't they? Picture a, a tug-of-war team pulling together, all together as one, side by side. 
And there's a real sense of togetherness, isn't there? This pulling side by side has a, a very particular focus. And, and it's for the focus of the gospel, that's really what it is. In other words, the striving for sound doctrine, for faithful teaching, for the rightful handling of God's word. That's really this, this we will not budge, we will not move. We must hold firm in teaching God's word and handling it rightly. And notice what comes next in verse 28. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. You see, Paul is, is writing to the, to the church, and he is saying, look, you need to be united, united in the truth of the gospel. You need to be united, united in the faith because you are going to need to stand against opponents to the gospel. I don't know if you've ever tried standing against opposition, but whatever the opposition might have been, it's much easier to stand against opposition if you are not on your own. If you're the only one that's facing the opposition, it's much, much more difficult, isn't it? Imagine you're heading out to war. You're heading out to fight. Well, it's going to make a difference whether you're heading off on your own to fight in the war or whether you're part of a regiment. That's going to make a difference, isn't it? I think if I was heading off to fight in the war, I'd, I'd want to go with others. I don't want to go on my own. No, it's, it's a completely different thing, isn't it? And Christians are not supposed to be on their own. In God's good design, he has given us the church, his bride, and Christians are supposed to be found in the church. The idea of a, a, a Christian being outside of the church, refusing to be part of the church, well, that's just bizarre when you read through the Bible. And part of the reason for that is we need each other, don't we? We need each other to have the strength to stand because we need to stand together. I need someone linking into this arm and I need someone linking into this arm so that we can stand together, side by side. I wonder if you're here this evening. Are you a member of a local church? Are you a member of a local church? I know you're, you're here tonight. Perhaps you're a Christian, but perhaps you've, you've never really thought it was important to become a member of a local church. Perhaps you just float here, there, depending on what day it is, whatever, whatever takes your fancy. See what the preaching plan is and think, yeah, I'll go there this week, there that week. No, that's, that's not the picture. We need to be together with a local church. I was talking to uh, John this week about the, the, the music ministry team that went out last uh, weekend to Almanekar, and it sounds like they had a, a wonderful time in Almanekar. And I was just thinking about the, the partnership, because as I listened to John feedback, uh, there was a real sense that he was encouraged and the rest of the team were encouraged. It wasn't just the, the church that they went out to that was encouraged. No, there was mutual encouragement. There was a side-by-side -side standing together as they sought to promote the gospel, as they sought to share the good news of Jesus with people in Almanekar. There is something, there is something about standing together that that takes away some of the fear, isn't there? If you've got brothers and sisters standing beside you, there's something about that, that that makes you stronger together than you would be if you were standing on your own. And so the togetherness is really, really important. And it helps with the not being frightened. But being together is not the only reason that we don't need to be frightened. What else might um, take away that fear? Well. Surely it's the fact that God is with us. Surely that's what helps take away the fear. God is with us. 
God is with us and he will never leave us nor forsake us. And if God is for us, well then, who can be against us? Remember, if you are in Christ, then ultimately God is for you. If you're standing for the gospel, ultimately God is for you. And so it puts our opposition in perspective, doesn't it? Because no matter what opposition we face, and sometimes we might face terrifying opposition, terrifying opposition, we can say that in comparison to God's power, the power that they yield is, well, it's very limited, isn't it? Very limited. In fact, the very opposition that they bring against us as his people has had to be granted by the hand of the king himself. And so we do not need to fear. We are to live a life worthy, behaving as citizens worthy of the gospel, consistently living in this particular way, and not dependent on who is watching, but standing firm in one spirit, a real sense of togetherness with one mind, striving side by side. And we're not to be afraid. And look at what happens when you do. Did you spot this? It sends a message. It sends a message to those who oppose the gospel, and it also sends a message to you. That's strange, isn't it? It sends a message to those who oppose the gospel, but it also sends a message to you. We see that in verse 28b. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. You see, as the church stands firm, as the church seeks to proclaim sound doctrine, as the church strives to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's like a great big billboard. A great big billboard that has a really clear message. And the message to those who reject Jesus is that you will face destruction. You will face destruction. Outside of Christ, there is no refuge. And by setting yourself against his church, it's a visual picture that you are setting yourself against God himself. And that is not going to end well. Not at all. But for the Christian, as you face opposition, as you stand firm, it actually points to your salvation. Now, what does Paul mean here? How, how does facing opposition and you standing firm point to your salvation? Well, there is nothing like facing opponents to really separate believers from those who just hang around with believers. You know, you could be here, you could gather with us every Sunday evening or maybe on a Sunday morning and you just might have a good time. You come here and you get to catch up with your friends each week and you think, well, this is great. It's like an organized party. In the morning, there's even tea and coffee afterwards. And maybe you enjoy the music here and you think to yourself, well, this is great. I'm very happy to come along here and, and life seems pretty good. And those things are, are good, okay? Those are, they're important parts of our gathering together as God's people, yes. But what would happen if you were to start to face opposition? Let's say because you come to church and, and gather with this group of people, let's say it's going to cost you your job. Are you going to keep coming? Are you going to gather with us on a Sunday? Let's say maybe... Maybe your family are going to refuse to invite you to family gatherings because you're, you come here on a Sunday. You're going to keep coming? You're going to gather with God's people? 
Let's say your, your friends, well, they no longer invite you to all of the, the social gatherings as well. Okay? There goes my family. There goes my, my friendship circle. Are you still going to gather? Are you going to come? Are you going to join with God's people? Because I reckon if you're not a Christian, if you don't have a deep conviction that you must gather with God's people, I think once the opposition comes, you might be mocked, you might be ostracized, you might be pushed to the side, you might lose a job, you might have whatever the implications might be. I reckon if, if you're just hanging around with the believers, well, you're not going to keep coming, are you? You're going to say, okay, at this point, I'm not going to go. You'll not find me in RPC on Sunday. But if you're a Christian, if you really are saved, if you're a believer, then you're going to keep coming and you're going to hold, hold firm, aren't you? When the opposition comes, you're going to stand side by side alongside the other believers. And as you face the opposition, it's going to be a message to you that says, yes, you really are a believer. You really have been saved. It's going to encourage you, isn't it? It's going to encourage you in your faith. You've been truly saved. You really are one of God's children. And so it's a message to the opponents. They've set themselves against God, and it is not going to end well. But it's also a message to the believer that you really have been saved, that you really are one of God's people. You really have known salvation. And look at how verse 28 ends. And that from God. And that from God. Seems that Paul wants to remind the believers in Philippi that everything that comes your way, everything, comes from the good hand of your heavenly Father because he is the one who is in control. And God's sovereign control, well, we see it in verse 29 as well, because here we see that God has given two gifts to the believers. Firstly, it's been granted that they believe in Christ. Okay, you see that? That itself is a gift from God. You will not believe in Jesus on your own accord, left in your, your natural sinful state, the, the state of spiritual death. You're not going to choose to follow after Jesus. Now, that's only going to happen. You're only going to believe in Jesus when the Spirit of God has worked to bring about life in this dead heart. That itself is a gift from God. But notice the second gift. Can you spot the second gift? This time it's perhaps a gift that maybe you wouldn't want. Because what is the gift? Well, the second gift is the gift of suffering. Do you spot that? It has been granted that you will believe in Christ, yes. But it has also been granted that you will suffer for Christ's sake. It seems that in how God gives out his gifts, these gifts come as a package deal. That's how it works. They come as a package deal, and you actually don't get one without the other. And that's consistent with, with what we see in teaching elsewhere throughout Scripture. Let me just give you one other example from uh, 2 Timothy 3.12. Listen to these words. It says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Do you hear that? All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's what's going to happen. So if you're going to live a, a Christian life, then you really will face persecution. That's what the, the Bible teaches. It comes as a package deal. Believing in Jesus comes with suffering for his sake. 
Well, I wonder, is that how you think about suffering? I wonder if you think about suffering as a, as a gift, because it's, it's a strange way, it's a different way of thinking about suffering than the world thinks about suffering, isn't it? Suffering as a, a gift. And all that we receive is a gift because of the fact that it comes from the hand of God, the Father. We get that uh, kind of language in the Heidelberg Catechism when it talks of God's providence. Listen to this question and answer. First 20, uh, question 27. What do you understand by the providence of God? Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. So why is it that we can think of suffering as a gift? Well, because of whose hand is behind it. Because even when evil comes upon us, we know that God has his good purpose in bringing it about. Through trials, we are shaped, aren't we? Through trials, we are made more Christ-like. It's the sandpaper that shapes us, that knocks off the rough edges. And suffering comes, and what happens when suffering comes? Well, it shows us our own weakness, doesn't it? When do you feel weak? Well, when you're suffering, you feel weak, don't you? And it drives us to God, and it drives us to His strength. And because it comes with God's good purpose, then, then we can see it as a gift. Then we can see it as a gift, as painful as that might be. And this gift of suffering has been endured by those who have gone before us. This is not a new thing. And as Paul writes to the Philippian Christians, he wasn't saying, well, you're going to experience suffering, but for me, I managed to avoid that, thankfully. No, Paul himself knew what it was to suffer for the gospel, didn't he? Verse 30, he says, you're engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here I still have. Paul was writing as a man who had suffered for the gospel. Paul himself knew what it was to be mobbed and, and, and beaten. He knew what it was to be arrested and imprisoned because of his faith. So it wasn't as if Paul was sent to the, the believers in Philippi, okay, you go and, and you suffer for the gospel, but he, he wasn't prepared to. No, he was someone who had experienced the very same thing. And they had saw it. They had saw it lived out in front of them. Paul had gone before them and lived an example for them. And as they, as they would read this letter and hear of his chains and hear that he was still in prison, he was still modeling what it was to live a life worthy. Even, even when suffering would come. Paul knew what it was to suffer. But then again, the Christ in whom Paul proclaimed also knew what it was to suffer. He left heaven to come and live here on the earth. He was called the man of sorrows, wasn't he? And his life was marked out by that of suffering, but especially in his death, especially in his death. So what should we expect? If Christ himself suffered, 
shouldn't we as his servants expect that we too will suffer? And so we have to ask the question, don't we? We have to ask the question, are we willing to suffer for the gospel? You're here this evening, are you willing to suffer for the gospel? Because if our belief is just fair weather belief, well then I doubt it's not real belief at all. And then we have to ask the question, are we actually suffering? Are we suffering? Are we feeling pain in in some area of our lives as a result of our faith in Christ and our lived out life worthy of the gospel? Are we feeling any pain? Because if, if we're not feeling any pain, could it be that we we're not living a life worthy of the gospel. We're not really living distinctive lives. Anywhere that it counts, we're refusing to live in the godly way that we're called to. I wonder this evening, is there any pain as a result of the fact that you're a Christian? I think Paul's talking here about particular opposition because of your faith. I think that's what he's talking about. So you look at the the context and what he's saying. I think Paul's particular focus here is thinking about direct suffering as a result of being a Christian. Suffering for his sake, that's what he says, isn't it? And then he goes on to talk about this clear opposition that he was facing for being a Christian. And sometimes it's really obvious, isn't it? You know, you you get sly remarks in the corridors, you queue up for a scripture union in your school. Well, You can say, okay, I get that. That's obvious opposition because I'm a Christian. You return home and your parents say, oh, you've become a Christian. You can no longer live in this house. That's pretty obvious, isn't it? And for some people, that's reality. It's pretty obvious opposition. But sometimes sometimes there's opposition for Christ's sake, and we, we find it hard to see because sometimes it's very hard to figure out why people are opposing us. Perhaps so. There's a, there's a family breakdown. Uh, relationships are strained. Perhaps it's with friends. And, and they, they are opposing you. They're, just, they're out to get you. You know that, but you don't know why. Well, could it be that it, it's that they're actually opposed to Christ? And because you're a Christian, because you're Christ's representative there in that place, well, then they are opposed to you. Sometimes it's hard to see what it is that's causing the opposition, isn't it? And yet maybe without even realizing it, you're facing opposition for Christ's sake. But I think there's also a sense in which we need to see all suffering as a gift. All suffering that we receive is is ultimately for the sake of the believer, if we recognize that God is working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so you might take sickness, for example, and you might say, well, sickness is is unlikely to be as a direct result of the fact that you're sharing the gospel with someone at work or whatever it might be. And yet, we have to recognize that it too comes from the hand of God, doesn't it? And how we respond to it, we're to bring glory to God. And it's meant to shape us, growing steadfastness so that we, we grow into mature believers. And so the Christian is to receive and respond to suffering differently than the unbeliever. They are to remember who they are. I am a child of God. I am greatly loved. And I must remember who I am and live differently 
to live a life worthy of the gospel. You see, Paul's reason for writing here wasn't really to question their faith, I don't think, but rather to remind them who they were. He wanted them to know that they were saints, that they were saints, that they were greatly loved by God, and because they were saints and greatly loved by God, they were to live differently. They were to live distinctive, godly lives, a life worthy of the gospel. Paul was really saying, remember who you are. And I think to us this evening, that's the message. To the believer, remember who you are. You're a child of God and you're greatly loved, and so you must live differently. You must live differently, a life worthy of the gospel. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. Maybe you've been watching on and as you've been watching on at the lives of many of the people who come here, you see that there's something different. You see that their lives really are different, that they just, they don't look the same as, as the others that you know. Well, that's what it is. They're living a life worthy of the gospel, empowered by the spirit that is within them. And it's a wonderfully attractive way to live because it is how we were made to live. It was what we were made for. This evening, if you're not a Christian, why not let tonight be the night where you come to Christ and say, I'm going to put my belief in you. I'm going to trust in you. Would you work in my heart in such a way that my heart would be changed so that I too might live a life worthy of the gospel? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who saves, that you rescue us out of sin and death, and you give us new hearts. And with those new hearts, we are supposed to live new lives. And so, Father, might your love for us, your saving of us, motivate us to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. Might we be a distinctive people, a people who are united, a people who are striving together side by side, who are focused on the gospel, holding firm to the truth. Lord, might we not be fearful when we meet opposition, but might we recognize that it sends a message, a message to the opponents that if they continue to oppose the gospel, if they continue to oppose Christ and his church, that they are facing eternal destruction but it's also a message for the believer, for those who stand that they are truly saved and might encourage them in their faith. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.